Hello and welcome to Deep Dive. I'm Oscar Boyd. This week, the Japan Times' Jesse Johnson on how the next meeting between the United States and North Korea might affect Japan. And a little later, I'll chat with Sean McKenna about what to expect from some of this year's biggest summer music festivals. If I had not been elected... Last Tuesday, Donald Trump gave his long-awaited State of the Union address to the US Congress. Amongst the stream of pledges, promises and attacks on the Mueller investigation, the US president announced plans for a new meeting between himself and Kim Jong-un, the supreme leader of North Korea. Chairman Kim and I will meet again on February 27th and 28th The meeting, set to take place in Vietnam at the end of February, will be the second between the leaders aimed at bringing about the eventual denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula and it follows on from a meeting in Singapore last June. But many question the prospects of any real progress being made, given the lack of concrete action and threats of rearmament in the intervening months between the Singapore meeting and today. Both Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump have talked a big game since the June summit in Singapore. That's Jesse Johnson, a senior reporter at the Japan Times. But really, there have not been any concrete actions to emerge since then. Trump, for his part, has claimed that he has effectively denuclearized the country and halted the nuclear threat. Uh, Most analysts would agree that that's pretty far from the truth. Uh, Kim Jong-un, meanwhile, has, uh, as part of his commitment to the Singapore Declaration, which both parties agreed to, has blown up the main nuclear test site of the North Koreans, and has also begun work on dismantling one of its key engine test sites. The problem with this is both of those actions are easily reversible, something Kim is well aware of. So it's been eight months since the Singapore meeting. Uh, People think generally that not much has been achieved, even though there's all this rhetoric around it. Why does Donald Trump want a new meeting now? Well, this this has actually been in the cards for a long time, but I think that both... Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un want to have the summit as soon as possible for a number of reasons. From Trump's perspective, he wants a foreign policy win that will take people's eyes off of the Russia probe. A big foreign policy win, especially one that effectively could bring peace to the Korean Peninsula, would secure Trump's place in history and it would cement his legacy. Those are two big things that I think Trump is looking out for. And on the other side, what do you think Kim Jong-un is looking for from this? Well, as everyone knows, North Korea is virtually a black hole for getting any decent information out of. It's all a lot lot of speculation. But most analysts think that Kim Jong-un wants to extend this, this process for as long as possible. And in doing so, he wants to show the world that North Korea is a nuclear power, a de facto nuclear power. In fact, it already is. Most people would agree with that. But Kim Jong-un also wants to make sure that he stays in power and that his regime is not toppled. So he's going to look for a number of ways to um, make a deal with Trump. Kim Jong-un wants a number of things. Uh, First of all, Kim Jong-un wants to keep his nuclear weapons. His nuclear weapons are what assures him and his regime of staying in power. Without them, Kim Jong-un is very afraid of a so-called decapitation strike, one strike by the U.S. military under which a missile strike or invasion takes him out. 
after that, Kim Jong Un also would, is hoping to secure what's called a, a peace declaration. It's not quite a peace treaty; it's a step on the way, but it effectively lays the groundwork for that peace treaty, which would come later in the negotiations. Kim Jong Un also wants sanctions to be eased. Right now, he's facing crippling U.S. and uh, U.N. sanctions. Most likely in this meeting, he won't receive all of those things, but he's probably looking to get some combination, some kind of a package deal. So that's very interesting. You have the U.S. president, Donald Trump, who's got quite a lot of skin in the game, and also Kim Jong-un, leader of North Korea. He's got a lot of skin in the game. They're both actually out here now fighting for their own political survival. Do you think uh, the fact that they're both so personally involved puts it at risk of, uh, of a kind of wish-wash deal being made? Well, there's, there's always that possibility. Um, a lot of people say that that's actually one of the, the negative points of this, how the process has unfolded so far. I'm inclined to disagree somewhat. In the past, U.S. and multilateral negotiations with the North Koreans, they went places but never quite far enough. There was never enough momentum, kind of a, a leader to push it through. And in a lot of ways, it's serendipitous to have someone like Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un working top-down to push this through. What, what could happen is this top-down process, eventually they agree on some broad outline of a deal, and then they leave it to the working level uh, talks, the lower-level officials, to kind of hammer out the details. At the very least, it slows down the North Koreans' nuclear objectives, uh, puts a freeze on things. But there is, there is definitely a chance that this could backfire and you could see the North Koreans walking away, or Trump walking away for that matter. Now it's interesting that Vietnam has been chosen as the location for these meetings. What opportunities does that offer both parties? Practically speaking, Vietnam was really the obvious choice for the meeting. Um, it had long been one of the, one of the main candidates discussed. Um, it's relatively close to North Korea, which means that Kim can travel there without the need to, you know, uh, have a layover or, or borrow a jet from China, which is what he, he ended up doing last time. And for someone like Kim Jong-un, a national leader that with a lot of pride, that's, that's quite an embarrassing having to kowtow before Beijing. Um, it's also non-aligned, and it has diplomatic relations with both Pyongyang and Washington. Uh, it's a single-party communist state, and Vietnam maintains super strict political control, and it has a very efficient security apparatus. So both Kim and Trump's um, security concerns should be alleviated. And uh, Vietnam actually has a lot of experience holding recent uh, international meetings. Da Nang hosted the APEC uh, forum in 2017, and it also held uh, the regional edition of the World Economic Forum last year. So they do have some experience in hosting these kind of large-scale meetings. What are the chances of progress in the Vietnam meeting? The chances of progress, I think, are fairly good. Um, now, they're on, a, they're on a very tight timeline, but they have held back-channel talks since the Singapore summit. So there's been a lot of back and forth and a lot of... Uh, backroom negotiations, things that probably the, the public is not really privy to. But I think that they've arrived at some kind of point where they realize 
the, the, the clock is ticking down and there's a limited time frame under which to make a deal. They know what they want. And within these next three weeks, two or three weeks, they're going to have to hash out some kind of broad agreement, which, like I said, they will, they will ultimately leave, leave to the working level officials to kind of hammer out the, the finer details. But again, this summit, which is going to be on February 27th, 28th, it's two days, that, that's quite unprecedented. Generally, these summits usually last a single day, just like the Singapore, Singapore summit. So why is that? Why do you think they're doing it for tea? It's all about the optics. I mean, Trump loves the camera. He wants to be in front of it, and he's going he's gonna to stretch that out for as long as he can. And Kim, too. It's not a one-man show. Kim wants to show that he's in charge, that he's one-on-one on equal par, equal level with the U.S. president. In terms of progress, then, what are the main sticking points to any new deal? It's, it's really unclear exactly how far either side is willing to go. I think there's been a softening of demands on the U.S. side, um, and you've seen that recently with the, North, the U.S. special representative to North Korea, Steve Bagan. He's talked about looking for a, a complete understanding of the full extent of North Korean weapons of mass destruction and missile programs. For a long time, the U.S. had said that we want a list of all your weapons, of all your facilities. You know, that's the first thing we want, and we'll go from there. But he's said now that at some point in the process, that would be acceptable, not necessarily first. So there's definitely a softening of demands. You've seen U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo talk about uh, the complete verified and irreversible destruction of the North Koreans' nuclear program. And he's, he's really toned down the language and there's been even some hints that the U.S. side might be willing to reach at least an early deal on North, the North Korean side, uh, destroying their long-range intercontinental ballistic missile program. Uh, that's the, those missiles, those weapons, are the ones that really put the fear of God into uh, the United States. Those missiles are capable of hitting as far as New York, according to many experts. They definitely want to get those out of the way. And even, even that, that's a win. Unfortunately, it leaves uh, allies, including Japan, a little bit in the lurch. So Mike Pompeo's language has also taken on uh, this kind of Donald Trump rhetoric of America first. Is that right? Absolutely. For U.S. allies, especially those in Asia, Japan, South Korea, that really leaves them in a precarious position. It leaves them hanging. The U.S. has committed to defending both countries. They have... Uh, they have treaties with them. You know, that's a big worry in Tokyo and Seoul, that the North Korean side will say, yeah, we'll get rid of these, these long-range missiles, and the U.S. side will just say, all right, we got a deal, and uh, we'll give you, you know, sanctions relief or a peace declaration in exchange for that. And there's a worry that that might be the end of the, the, the road in the, of these negotiations. They might just kind of stop there. Trump's happy. You know, he's got his foreign policy victory, and the rest is just, there might be, there might be superficial talks or you know, an ongoing process, but Trump is known for having a very short attention span. So we could end up in the situation where in a couple of months' time after the deal or a year or so, the North Korea actually has missiles that are capable of striking at a very short range. Well, it's, it's had those for a long time. I mean, that's long been Tokyo's biggest concern. Um, you know, just in 2017, they were able to lob a couple of missiles over Japan, and the response in Tokyo was wow, they were scared. Yeah, I remember those flying over. Well, I was in Fukuoka, but the alarms went off in Hokkaido. Uh-huh. I still remember that day quite vividly. Yeah. Actually, uh, on that note, the North Koreans, 
did a what's called a saturation strike practice, and, which is when you launch multiple missiles at one time. And they launched them into the Sea of Japan, and they explicitly said afterwards that the goal of this training exercise was to target U.S. military bases and uh, ports, key sites in Japan. And uh, experts actually measured if these, these missiles could target a lot of these sites, and they were in range. What would a deal like this, whereby America's happy... Uh, the long-range intercontinental ballistic missiles have been taken off the table, but the short-range ones still exist. What would that kind of deal actually mean for security in the Asia-Pacific region? Well, I think it's, it says a lot in terms of uh, Trump's commitment to alliances. It, it, you know, it's, it says that he doesn't really care about, about upholding these. You know, and these are, these are key. These aren't just about uh, security. There's, it's, it's all intertwined. Trade, uh, all security, military relationships, uh, everything—it's all—it's all intertwined. And when you start pulling on these strings, the whole thing could become undone. Is there a scenario as a result of this deal uh, where we see a future with an increase of nuclear proliferation? For Japan, at least, that's that's quite a far-off uh, scenario in my mind. The general public is obviously very, very uh, against possessing nuclear weapons, but. For the, the people, there was a shift after North Korea started lobbying medium-range missiles over uh, the archipelago. People's mindsets started to shift a little bit. It was, it, was, it was noticeable, I think. With North Korea being nuked up and China and its maritime aggressiveness, uh, often sending ships near the Senkaku Islands, which Japan administers, but China also claims you have a China threat and then you have a North Korean threat. There's, very, there's a possibility that Japan could weigh the option of going nuclear, and they could do it very quickly. How likely is it that Trump would accept a partial denuclearization deal? The reality of the situation is that he'll he'll have to accept that from the start, I think. The question is whether he's committed to building on steps. It, it, it's not like the North Koreans are just going to go, hey, here's our nuclear weapons. Um, can you relieve sanctions? Like I said, Kim, Kim wants to be, uh, he needs the assurance that he's secure in his position. And more than that, he needs to have a reassurance that he can build his economy and he can build his country and not be at the same time trying to Prepared, prepared to fend off an invasion or an American attack. And I assume he's probably looked at uh, past cases such as Gaddafi being overthrown, and that's what he's probably most worried about. Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. There have been numerous statements referring to Libya, which also had a, a fledgling, much, much, much less developed than the North Korean nuclear program. But they also had a, a nuclear program. And uh, they point to that often and say, hey, you need to give us some kind of assurances. We don't want to end up like Colonel Gaddafi. They also point to Saddam Hussein, too. Uh, regime change and how the U.S. Is, you know, has a history of those kind of actions. For Japan, what would be the best possible outcome from this meeting? For Japan, the, the best possible outcome, which probably won't come true, unfortunately, is that uh, the North Koreans address the abductions issue, which is the, uh, the kidnapping by North Korean agents of Japanese nationals in the 1970s and 80s. When uh, Prime Minister Junichiro Koizumi went to Pyongyang, and met uh, Kim Jong-un's father, Kim Jong-il, the North Koreans, in their own way, came clean on the whole issue and, and 
it, like I said, in their own way, they kind of apologize for it. And I think that they still feel that that was the statement on the issue and it's done. Um, but Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, has, he's staked his reputation on solving this abduction issue. It's very important to the Japanese. So almost more important than the security issue. And wrapping up things perhaps by looking at Vietnam and its, its choice as a position for this meeting. Some analysts actually have put forward the idea that Vietnam represents a potential model for North Korea going forward, an example of a way out of the deadlock um, with the US. Right, that's, that's very true. Um, actually, the US side has, has actually touted uh, Vietnam as a, as a model for North Korea. imaginable prosperity and partnership we have with Vietnam today. Uh, I have a message for Chairman Kim Jong-un. Uh, President Trump believes your country can replicate this path. It's yours if Mike you'll Pompeo, seize the moment. Secretary of State, uh, he went to Hanoi in July, and he, he said himself that Pyongyang could follow in the footsteps of uh, Vietnam. And last year, late last year, North Korean Foreign Minister Ri Yong-ho uh, visited Vietnam, and one of the main points of that trip according to media reports, was that he was, at least in part, there to study uh, what's called the, the Doi Moi reforms, which are just economic reforms that uh, Vietnam instituted when it started to open up uh, in the mid-1980s. And Vietnam has been a, a very... Uh, it's managed to, the Communist Party has managed to maintain its grip on power, but at the same time uh, open its economy and uh, grow quite substantially. I think both sides kind of see that as a, a possible model. There are differences, though, mind you. Uh, there's no cult of personality in Vietnam like there is in North Korea. Um, and Kim, you know, he'd be putting himself at risk by opening up the economy in the same way that Vietnam did, risk that he might be toppled. Uh, and that's one of his bigger concerns, like how, how is he going to, to do that? How is he going to uh, maintain his grip on power but also grow the economy and keep make his country, you know, Great again. Great again. <laughs> Great again, yeah. yeah, exactly. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Jesse Johnson's writings on North Korea and security in the Asia-Pacific region can be found online at japantimes.co.jp. Next up, on Friday, music fans in Japan were excited to see the first lineup announcements for this year's Fuji Rock Festival. Joining me now to talk about it is Features Editor Sean McKenna. Hello, Sean. Hello, Oscar. So, this year we have the Chemical Brothers, The Cure, Sia, so far announced for Fuji Rock. Yep, they look like they're going to be the headliners. What, what do you think? think? I, I was going to ask you. I think they're good choices for Fuji Rock. Um, I've seen some people on Twitter kind of taking digs at the Chemical Brothers being on there uh, because they're 90s music. However, they're high energy. They have that right amount of 90s nostalgia that are just going to make drunk people really happy. And they've got a new album coming out quite soon. They do have a new album out, and it features a Japanese rapper named Nene from Yurufuwa Gang. For me, The Cure, that's a big disappointment. I saw them at Bestival way back in 2011, and they played a two and a half hour set that went on for, well, two and a half hours, but basically two hours too long for me. Look, I love The Cure. But I did see them at Fuji Rock a few years ago, and I think the set was about three and a half hours. It felt like that, at least. And this year's their 40th anniversary, so I can't imagine they're going to pair it back at all. That's right, yeah. So maybe if we're lucky, we can get a Sisters of Mercy 
reunion at one of the other stages. Or a typhoon will come along and knock them <laughs> off stage. Now, now. <laughs> but the surprising one to me is uh, Sia. Yes, that is a surprise. Um, she's a really great uh, songwriter with her own right. She's had hits with um, Chandelier and Elastic Heart. But she's also been the vocals for the band Zero Seven. Distractions. Great yes, song. Brilliant song. And she's been with, uh, she's done a lot of collaborations with David Guetta. She did Titanium, She-Wolf, Helium, all big tunes. Yes, but more importantly, Sia was the act that really impressed a lot of people at Coachella in 2016. Um, a lot of news articles came out about how great she was and what a great performance she put on. So I could see if she ended up being um, headlining a Sunday night, I think it would be a really good way to end off the festival. And looking beyond the headliners then, um, you've got a deeper lineup also announced. Who, who have we got there? Um, there's a lot of good uh, smaller acts being announced for Fuji Rock. And I say smaller acts, but they're actually not that small. Um, Janelle Monet is on there, uh, James Blake, uh, Death Cab for Cutie, and then Tom York uh, from Radiohead. He's got mm-hmm. uh, Tomorrow's Modern Boxes. So I guess that's him just playing the album. Seems like uh, quite a producer's lineup because you've got James Blake, he does a lot of stuff with Andre 3000, Kendrick Lamar, Kate Trinada has worked with Anderson Pack. Yeah, and that's not surprising because what people don't realize about Japanese music fans is that they're actually really interested in production and sound. I think a lot of festivals overseas, you might get people just kind of going there to kind of, you know, wild out. But there's a lot of Japanese music fans who are there to actually see how the musical production rolls out. So they'd be really into a set like this. And tell us a little bit more about Fuji Rock for perhaps our listeners who have never been or never heard of the festival. Well, it's notorious for its rain. So if you're going to go up there, make sure you pack, you know, galoshes and your rain gear and things like that. But uh, nothing was as bad as the very first Fuji Rock where an actual typhoon hit in the middle of a Red Hot Chili Pepper set. And that actually caused it to be moved from its original Fuji location, right? That's right. It used to be at Mount Fuji, but now it's in uh, Niigata. So it's a little further inland and less likely to get hit by a typhoon. Yeah, the whole thing is built on a ski resort. So unless you get there on kind of a Wednesday afternoon to set up your tent, you're going to be camping on a 45 degree incline, as I've well experienced. Really? Yeah, it was quite a sleepless night. Uh, There were five of us sharing a tent on a, a very steep incline at the top of the ski resort. About every half an hour, you'd wake up in the middle of the night to find yourself at the bottom of the tent, crawl up, um, and about 30 minutes later, find yourself back at the bottom of the tent all yeah. over again. Yeah, that's the Fuji Rock experience, though. I mean, I've only ever done it with the hotel, so I kind of feel like I cheated. Talking of Red Hot Chili Peppers and typhoons blowing in through the festival, Tokyo's other big summer music festival, Summer Sonic, they've actually managed to nab the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And it's quite a big year for them, is it not? It is. It's their um, 20th anniversary this year. So they've got the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, They've also got Chainsmokers and Bees performing. So Bees is a Japanese uh, hard rock outfit. They're really popular here. They're not as popular overseas, but Summer Sonic tends to like to bring in kind of bands that Japanese fans know to try to kind of increase ticket sales that way. I think looking at the lineups over the last couple of years, it seems like Fuji Rock and Summer Sonic have done a bit of a swap. So Fuji Rock's lineup maybe three years ago is pretty similar to what Summer Sonics might be this year. Yeah, I would say that Fuji Rock tended to be a little bit more geared towards British rock and that kind of listener, whereas Summer Sonic did try to move into the whole like 
kind of urban music or rap or hip hop or soul. So, you know, I've, I often go to Summer Sonic just because it's so close to Tokyo. It's a lot easier to get there. So I've seen Jay-Z there. I've seen Stevie Wonder. They kind of have a little bit more of a hipper lineup or maybe a more modern lineup. However, last year when you went, they had Kendrick Lamar. They did. Right? And I thought that would have been more of a Summer Sonic choice, but Fuji Rock managed to get them, and that was a, that was a really great coup for them. And looking at the current lineup right now, as it stands, which one piques your fancy? Which one are you going to go to? Hmm. I do like the look of Brockhampton uh, at Summer Sonic. I've just started listening to them recently. Yeah, those guys are pretty amazing. You know, I think they were all Kanye fans and actually met on an online Kanye forum. Um, and that brought, I think, there's eight or 10 or 12 or maybe even 20 of them. Yeah, they're, they're described as a collective. They're a yeah. collective, but I yeah. think they all met on this uh, Kanye forum. But they're doing some fantastic stuff and have amazing production. Right, so they're going to be playing alongside Alan Walker and Chainsmokers. Um, so I'm not sure about Alan Walker and Chainsmokers. To me, it kind of just sounds like every track that gets put in the background of a YouTube video when you're like going out into the countryside. Um, but uh, I would say that Fuji Rock piques my interest more so far. When you first look at it, you might think that it doesn't look that great. But when you really get into it and you start listening to some of the bands... There's really a lot of good bands that are going to be there, like Kate Renata. I like Tori Moi, um, Yaiji, who's a Korean-American artist that 88 Rising is promoting. Um, Mitski, she was on the top of a lot of critics' choice lists last year. Fuji Rock is also the festival that's really good for these like discoveries. So you kind of just wander off a trail and then you find yourself at a new stage and you see you know, a band that's really into it and... That will be your best memory from Fuji. Fantastic. Well, I hope to see you there. I hope so too. You can find more on what to expect from this summer's Fuji Rock and Summer Sonic Festivals online at japantimes.co.jp, where you can also find all the latest in-depth news, lifestyle, culture, and sports from Japan and beyond. Deep Dive was hosted this week by me, Oscar Boyd, and our guests were Jesse Johnson and Sean McKenna. Thanks to both for joining us this week. If you like Deep Dive, please leave us a review or a rating. It really does help. And you can find more episodes on all major podcasting platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Join us on Twitter and let us know your thoughts on the episode by following the account at Japan Deep Dive. Thanks for listening and see you next time.